appreciate Brother Sammy finding things to do so I could come preach to you. If you'd like to find your way over to uh, 2 Samuel chapter, oh, somewhere along about uh, 15 would be good. And uh, we're going to be looking at several verses in, uh, in 2 Samuel this morning. The message, I, if, if you gave it a title, I would call it Tardy Tears. You know, it doesn't take a, a Ph.D. in sociology to realize that uh, families are deteriorating. Uh, this could be called the, the decade of fractured families. I, I learned about this kind of, you know, when you live in a city like Russellville or, or Bill Campbell and you're around community and friends, you kind of forget what's going on in the world. Uh, we, are, we have a segment of that, but it, I don't think that it impacts us um, because of the kind of community we have. And uh, Jeannie and I, we, we like to travel, and uh, we took one of these Viking River cruises that you see advertised on TV. And uh, it's open seating for the meals. Now, they provide all the meals while you're on the boat. If you've done a cruise, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, so you'll, you'll be sitting with different people and different, different meals. And so uh, one of the lessons I learned the hard way, you never ask the couple, how long have you been married? Because there's a good chance they're not. That, that was a shock for me. Uh, a large percentage of the people traveling on that ship weren't married to each other. There's one man from Washington, D.C., and he was with a lady from Florida. And uh, as we visited with them, they, we found out that uh, he would go down on a weekend or so a month and spend the weekend with her, and she would come up a weekend or so a month and spend the weekend with him. But when they traveled, they always stayed together. That's not the kind of world I'm used to. You know, it's just, uh, it just different. Um, in 2008, the U.S. Census Bureau said there were, let me get it right, 13 million, 13.6 million unmarried opposite-sex couples living together. To get that 13.6 million, that was in 2008. In 2003, just five years earlier, there were 4.6. That means it's tripled in five years and probably even more so to get statistics that would be up to date now. Just cohabiting. If you watch any, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, house Hunters. Anybody watch House Hunters besides me? Okay, some of y'all do. Have you ever seen any normal people on there? I mean, like a husband, a wife, you know, a couple of kids looking for a house. No, it's usually uh, two lesbians or two homosexual guys or, or, you know, it's just, or a couple that are just living together, looking for a house, go to buy a house together. How does that work? Let's think about this. The out-of-wedlock childbirth rate last year was 41%. That means that nearly one out of every two women that have a baby at Keller Hospital don't have a husband. 
What's that tell us about our world? What's that tell about our families? Children, children born to, to married parents, we are told, are much more likely to finish school, to go to college, to get a job, and become productive citizens. Do you realize that 75% of the prisoners in the prisons in the United States of America, 75% were born out of wedlock? What does I tell you about the stability and strength of a man and a woman living together and raising a family? We wonder why our culture is falling apart. We wonder why the, the, the world seems to be decaying around us. For many people, the word family is not a happy word. It's, uh, Dr. Dobson said, sometimes we're so concerned about giving our children what we never had growing up that we neglect to give them what we did have growing up. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel, that 15th chapter. We're going to look at just a couple of ver- verses to get us started, and then we'll build, we'll build out of the text. I will not take a text out of context because that's a pretext. But I want to, I want to give you just a, a feel for what's going on here. In 2 Samuel, chapter 15, verse 13, the Word of God says, Now a, mes- a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. So that David said to all of his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then then drop on down to verse 23. And all the country wept with a loud voice. And all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron. And the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And then drop down to verse 30. And so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. He had his head covered and went barefoot. All the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. This is going to be the longest walk that David ever takes. He's now in his 60s. It's not a long climb. Jeannie and I have walked that route many times from visiting Jerusalem. But David, the Bible says, walks barefoot. And he stops often to weep. His tears, his tears are for Absalom. Absalom was his favorite son. Absalom has taken the kingdom from him. The king now has no crown. The city he established and built and loved is behind him. There's nothing in front of him but the desolation and waste of the Judean desert. How did David come to this point in his life? 
where the things that he loved and enjoyed have crumbled in his hands. But you see, David's not any different from us. David is a man after God's own heart, and yet he's a man with faults and failures. So I'd like to ask David some questions this morning. I, I would like to walk with him up that mountain, up the Mount of Olives, where our Lord prayed and wept, as it were, tears of blood. And I'd like to say to him, David, David, tell me, how's your marriage? Well, David, I think, would have to say, I haven't done so good with my marriage. There's an interesting list back in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 3 and verses 2 through 5. Let me just read it to you. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinab, the Jezreelitess. His second, Caleb, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Micah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Higgath. And the fifth, Shephtilah, son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithraim, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Now, if you counted, that's six wives. Six wives. Now, wait a minute, but you've got to add Michael, Saul's daughter. And you have to add, of course, the famous Bathsheba. So that's eight. David, how's your marriage? Well, I have to say, I didn't do too good. Oh, but we've got to dig a little deeper. First Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 9 has this little statement. After a long list, it says, And these were all the sons of David besides the sons of the concubines. So he only had eight wives. He had a whole bunch of other women on the side that he had children by. And you go, David, what were you thinking? Do you not remember what God said? God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and do what? Cleave to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. David, don't you remember what God told you would happen if you, if you multiplied wives to yourself? He, he made it clear. He, he was very open about it. He said this in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it, and will say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations around me. But he shall not multiply horses to himself. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, lest his heart turn away. God said, don't do that. Don't do that. It will, it will hurt you spiritually. It will, it will destroy that relationship that warm walk that you have with me, your heart will be drawn away, and that's exactly what happened to David. David, how's your marriage? 
And David would have to say, I didn't do too well with my marriage. David would like to ask you another question. As again, he stops to weep and lament over Absalom and what's happening in his life. I say, David, how's your family? How are things going between you and your family? And and in answer to that question, David can only say this. Everything that Nathan the prophet said to me has come true. I said, Brother Gene, what are you talking about? Well, if you go back to uh, the book of 2 Samuel and, and, and chapter 12 and verse 13, well, you just turn to several verses we'll need in that text. Verse 8, or 9, he says, and, and why have you despised the commandment of the Lord? See, what David did, he, he, he rejected the word of God. To do evil in his sight. You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me, because you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your wife. David says in verse 13 to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Oh, he confessed his sin. He he recognized his failure. He sought God for forgiveness, and God gave forgiveness. In verse 13, it says, The Lord also has put away your sin. I don't want to tell you. There are consequences, folks. Sin has consequences. Sin can be forgiven, but the consequences are not going to be erased because the sin's been forgiven. That's what happened to to David. He said, I'm suffering the consequences of my sin. The sword's not going to depart from your house. David, there's going to be results from what you've done. Can we talk a minute? There's something that I see with the youth of our day that troubles me. And that is, they do not seem to be able to link actions with consequences. They have no no understanding that if you make certain choices, you're going to reap certain results, just like David did. I'm thinking one of the things, and and I'm not just getting on a high horse looking for something to preach on, but it troubles me to see these electric cigarettes that they're advertising now. Do you realize a lot of our young people are getting those things and say, oh, it's just water vapor. Oh, yeah, you can just water vapor, but you can get those things that put nicotine into the water vapor. So guess what they're hooked on? Just They might as well be smoking a cigarette, except that they're not getting the ash and all the stuff. 
they still get the same addictive results. Well, it's just fun. Yeah, but that fun ends up with consequences. You've read about it. You've heard about it. Maybe you've even experienced it with some of you people you know. The thing young people are doing with, with their cell phones and with their, they're calling it sexting. They'll take a, a picture of themselves without any clothes on it and the girls will send it to their boyfriend. They don't see any consequences from that. Well, hello, guess what happens when you break up with the boyfriend? He's going to send that picture to all his buddies and anybody else you might know. So they got a naked picture of yourself out there for everybody to see. When he goes on the internet, it's public property for everybody. Where do you try to get a job with some company that requires some moral standards? And that thing pops up. You hear what I'm saying? Choices have consequences. And you've got to begin to think about the choices you're making, whether it's with drugs or sex or whatever it is. Choices have consequences. David learned that lesson the hard way. David's son, Amnon, is attracted to to his half-sister. Her name is Tamar. You know the story. I'm not going to relate it. But he forces himself on this half-sister. And I want you to listen to David's response. You can, you can check uh, 2 Samuel 13, 21. But when David heard all these things, he was very angry. What? That's all? He was very angry? Shouldn't there be something more than, than just being, no, shouldn't there be some kind of punishment or banishment or, or something? And you know what's worse to me? Amnon wasn't punished. But Tamar was never helped. There's no indication that David ever came and tried to console her, tried to help her. It's like, that wasn't good. Well, no, David, it's a little hard to rebuke your son for the same kind of sin you committed. Choices have consequences. So Absalom decides he's going to take things into his hands. Absalom goes out and and he has this guy killed, his brother has him killed, and then then he takes off and heads to mama's people where he feels like he's safe. 2 Chronicles chapter 13 and verse 38. Those of you who want to go back and check out the story, it says, uh, so Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there for three years. And King David longed to go to Absalom, even though he's murdered one of his own children, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon because he was dead. Well, when you've had somebody killed, Uriah the Hittite, isn't it a little hard to go to your son and say, uh, 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 you shouldn't have done that? Choices have consequences. David made a lot of bad choices. So he sends Joab, his good buddy, his, best, his right-hand man, 
in chapter 14 and verse 21, the word, the word of God tells us, the king said to Joab, all right, I have granted this thing. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. So he goes to Geshur. He brings Absalom back to Jerusalem. But guess what? David's not going to have anything to do with him. He's there all this time, and he refuses to see him. 2 Samuel 14, 28. It says, And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Is this any way to run a family? No confrontation. No, no punishment. No result. You get all the wrong results from that. Choices have consequences. Ultimately, to pay his dad back, Absalom steals the kingdom. Goes down and sits at the, at the gate. Now, all, it, it's, it could be like, okay, for us, it'd be like going down to the courthouse and sitting there in the lobby of the courthouse and talking to the people who come in and out with gripes and complaints and problems with the, what the government is doing, i.e. David being the government. And he said, well, you know, if I were king, I, I would do something about this. If I were king, I'd do something about this, you know. You could, you could, we'll take care of it, period. And so the people become loyal followers of Absalom, and David is driven out. David is walking up the Mount of Olives with us. And he's weeping as he goes. And then ultimately, Absalom is killed. In 2 Samuel 18, 33, listen to what it says. Then, then, then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, oh, Absalom, my son. David, you're a little late. You should have been doing something about this a long time ago. But is David any different than us? We see a problem with our children our grandchildren. We ignore it. Or we look the other way. Choices have consequences. David, how's your marriage? Not good. David, how's your family? Well, it looks like I, I succeeded everywhere except at home. Today we have people that are working so many hours, they don't have time for a family. They come in tired, they go to bed, they see the kids, they speak to them in the morning, and they hope things are all right. And choices have consequences. You know, except for the prayer that David offered when Bathsheba's baby died, I cannot find, and, and if you find it, please call me, and I would like to see it. There is no record of David ever praying for his family. 
Well, he prayed. He prayed for the Philistines. He interceded for, the, for his warriors. He offered prayers for Jonathan, for his, friend, for his friend, and for Saul, his arch rival. But as far as his family is concerned, there is no record that David ever prayed for his family. So, David, I got one more question. How's your faith? How's your faith? David would have to say, you know, I've had a lot of failures in my life. A lot of things that didn't go right. But my faith has been faith has been strong in the Lord. That He accepts me and forgives me even when I fail. You know, I'm glad to hear that. That's the word I need to hear. Because I've got failures. I've stumbled along the way. I've made some dumb choices. And yet, my God, the one I have a relationship with personally, has picked me up and forgiven me and brushed me off and gave me strength to go on. He'll do that for any of us. He's a God that forgives sin because of what his son Jesus did on the cross. David's faith remains strong even in his failure. Man will fail, but I want to tell you this morning, God will never fail. This morning, he offers to you forgiveness. Brother Gene, you don't know what I've done. Had anybody killed? David did. David had Uriah killed, and God said it was just as well as David if you had taken the sword and killed the man yourself. And in Psalm 51, David writes about that. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. It's against you and only against you that I have sinned and done evil in your sight. You know the good news this morning? God forgave David. Doesn't mean God erased the consequences. Now he suffered the consequence of his sin. See, if you go out and get drunk and you hit a bridge abutment and you get thrown through the windshield of your car and you lose a limb, God will forgive you for your drunkenness. But you don't get your limb back. It's the same way with our families. It's the same way with our personal lives. It's the same way with everything. Choices have consequences. So I've asked David some questions this morning. I want to ask you some questions. How's your marriage? You're married. How you doing? Only you can answer that question. In a moment, I'm going to close this message with prayer before we have our invitation. When we do that, I would like for you 
to do an honest evaluation of the relationship between you and your spouse. And if you need to, I, I'm not asking you to come down here. Right there where you are. Would you simply say to God, help me do better? Forgive me where I haven't been the husband or wife that I should have been. And help me do better. And you know what the good news is? <laughs> he will. I want to ask you another question. How's your family? Children? Grandchildren? Great-grandchildren? There's something there that needs to be dealt with. Choices have consequences. David made some bad choices. David suffered the consequences. You have a chance to make the corrections now, not after it's too late. And then lastly, I would ask you, how's your faith? You hear this morning in, in church, but do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a saving relationship with him by faith? He offers to you the greatest gift you can ever receive. He's willing to forgive anything and everything you've ever done to cleanse you, to make you his child, to give you heaven, and to give you hope for today. If you've never trusted him, in a moment we're going to sing him an invitation, and it's your opportunity to say, yes, today I'm not walking out these doors again without Christ. A stand for prayer.